It's okay. Um, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us both in person uh, and via live stream today. I am delighted to uh, help moderate a panel on securing our energy future. We've named this a dialogue between trends and solutions. Uh, I'm Brigham McCown, the uh, Senior Fellow and Director of the Initiative on American Energy Security here at Hudson. Joining me today, we have Adam DeMella, the Head of Global Affairs and Policy for GE Hitachi. We have uh, also with us uh, Matusi Paul, Vice President of Business and, is it Business and Government? Relations at Modern Hydrogen. And last but not least, to, uh, to my left, your immediate right is uh, Travis Fisher, Senior Research Fellow at Heritage and uh, former DOE and FERC experience. Um, I'm pleased to welcome everybody to the panel. Uh, what we're going to start off with doing is asking uh, each of you to provide an overview of your areas of expertise as you see uh, the, the challenges and opportunities presented to us today. We'll start first with Adam. Thanks, Brigham, and uh, thanks for putting on this event today. It's important that we talk about this stuff. Um, a lot of times when we talk about energy and we talk about the energy transition, folks, folks like to say, you know, they favor an all-the-above all the strategy. Right? I, I never say that because I don't know what it means. I think it's, it's a way for nobody to have to be thoughtful or object to anything and just say, we'll all go along. I think more about time frames and time scales, right? So, so we know where we are. We have a sense of where we want to get to. And then the question is, how do, we, how do we progress along that path and how do we get to the place we ultimately need to get without breaking things unnecessarily, right? And then when you think about technologies, um, and, you know, one of my favorite technologies, of course, is nuclear. I've spent my whole life working in and around it, is I think of those technologies in four different buckets. There's now technology, soon technology, later technology, and maybe never technology, right? So, so as more and more people have started doing the math about how we get, and I'll start and I'll talk first about the U.S. perspective, I think, and it's not universally U.S., but it's primarily. When we talk about our energy future and the mix of what we might want in the, in the future. In the US, it's primarily about carbon and carbon reduction, greenhouse gas reductions, right? And so then the debate is, um, and was for a while, well, we want more and more renewables. We want as many renewables as we can. Some people said, oh, we want all renewables. You know, we don't like nuclear, we don't like gas, we don't like coal, just renewables. Well, I often say Mother Nature gets a vote, and, and there are some problems why that doesn't work. And, and many of the utilities that invested heavily in renewables started to figure that out when, when the grid didn't like it very much. Right? And so then they step back and they reevaluate. And when they've reevaluated, they said, well, we need baseload sources of energy. Nuclear is an obvious choice if your primary consideration is carbon reduction. Um, the challenge with nuclear is we're not ready today to deliver new nuclear to the grid. Right? We're just at the point now where the now technologies are at the earliest stages of licensing and, and construction. Um, if I flip that, though, and I think about it more internationally, primarily if I go to Europe, for example, they're in a real energy crisis. And this even predates the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right? The cost of electricity in Europe, the availability of energy. Folks knew before the invasion that being reliant on Russia for gas wasn't a good idea. Um, and so there, folks tend to be a lot more aggressive, and they talk about energy security. 
and independence, right? They care about carbon reduction, but they care about those other things even more. And I think on a worldwide scale, that's going to drive the transition of energy and the uh, more growth in nuclear than anything else, right? But then nuclear being different than other technologies, because it's more complex, particularly in the regulatory regime, those countries want to see reactor designs that are licensed in the US or Canada, OK? And so, so the biggest challenge we have, really, is delivering the earliest plants and getting those things online. Um, the, the old adage in nuclear is everybody wants to go second, nobody wants to go first. Right? So we've been fortunate, my company, General Electric, in that we were selected in Canada by Ontario Power to build the first SMR in North America. That project is already underway. The license application for construction has been submitted. Uh, the groundbreaking's already occurred. Uh, we've already ordered some major components. The design is well on its way to completion. Um, and, and so we envision a world where we build there, where we build some in the United States, and we're talking to multiple utilities about that right now, including Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, we also have partners in Europe who want to follow as closely behind either Canada or TVA or both and deploy over there. Um, I think that's, it's important, though, to recognize that while that's an important step toward the long-term you know, long vision for what we want, the first plant in Canada is not going to deliver until 2028. Right? And so it's important when we say things like all the above that that doesn't mean I destroy everything that exists today in favor of what I want to have if what I want to have isn't ready yet. And so the real challenge is, how do we make, you know, how do we make and manage through that transition? Um, and how do we do it in a way that, that doesn't, let's not make decisions in the near term that, that you know, put us in a box in the future. That's where we spend a lot of our time and attention, right? The rest of it is, if I think about nuclear generally, the biggest challenges that we have in nuclear is proving that we can build on time and on schedule, right? If you look at all the, the past examples, there's a lot of, Projects that were supposed to cost X and it cost 2X or 3X, right? But there's also some examples where we didn't. Um, you know, we did some designs that were built by our partners. So GE is, uh, the nuclear company for GE is a joint venture between GE and Hitachi. Our Japanese partners, Hitachi, built some plants in the early 2000s, um, four or five plants, all built on time and on schedule. So it can be done, right? It has been done. Uh, the key really is, making sure we do the upfront engineering and design work, make sure that we do the licensing work that is necessary. Um, and as long as we prove on these early projects that we can deliver on time and on schedule, I think a lot of the other concerns go away, and they go away pretty quickly. I don't want to talk too long. I want to give us time for discussion, so I'm going to end it there. Okay. Thank you so much. Sure. Uh, Matusi, thank you for flying all the way across the country to join us uh, here at Hudson today. And... Um, so what is your company all about? Uh, for maybe those that haven't heard about uh, modern hydrogen, what can you tell us? Well, number one, thank you for having me. Um, number two, um, I flew up from Miami, ah. um, uh, where we were doing a project site visit. Um, and we'll go into that a little bit, uh, um, a little bit later on in the discussion. Um, our entire hy hypothesis and argument here is, you know, assuming that we need to work towards decarbonization, 
um, that there is absolutely the kind of time-framed approach, and I think that's a great way of thinking about it. Um, our, our entire hypothesis is, is, is economic, that if we need to decarbonize, that we've got to focus on really priority areas, um, and that the easiest ways to decarbonize are really built on the backbone of infrastructure that's already, that's already in place. Um, if you think about emissions in the US, there are a lot that are associated with transportation. There's a lot that's associated with electricity and power generation. There's a lot associated with uh, chemistry, chemical processes. And there's a lot associated with industrial process heat. Our entire kind of uh, cause uh, and focus is on heat and power. Um, and in particular, when we think about heat within our economy, like, there's nothing that you are wearing today. There's nothing that's, um, you know, in the room that we're in today that doesn't have process heat as a key element of uh, developing these materials. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a foundational pillar in our, in our economy, and decarbonizing that is not, is not easy. Um, you know, if you, if you think about the work that needs to be done um, in decarbonization from a really objective standpoint, um, renewables are a great idea um, and are growing rapidly, but as a fraction of our total energy mix, it's tiny. Mm -hmm. um, and on top of that scale, there's also the um, volatility in terms of availability of renewables. That has to grow over time. Um, and ideally, in the next 10, 20, 30 years, should be available at scale. But it's not today. And it's not going to be for the next couple of decades. So the real question is, what do we do today? And at Modern Hydrogen, we're really focused on decarbonizing natural gas. Number one, because the infrastructure is there. Number two, we have the operating environment with a lot of people who have a lot of expertise in managing gas. We have incredible natural gas resources and assets here in the US. So if we can use that infrastructure, if we can use that know-how, if we can use that natural gas and decarbonize it, um, particularly in our case at the point of use, then we can, in, in many ways, leapfrog these um, systemic challenges around power generation capacity, around transmission and uh, distribution infrastructure availability, and we can really get kind of get to the core of um, industrial, industrial process heating. So um, our technology stack sits literally at the end of the natural gas line. Think right next to your gas meter or right next to an industrial furnace or boiler and literally strips solid carbon out of that out of that natural gas. So how do I think of um, energy security? Um, you know, to your opening comment, um, I think of energy security as really heavily um, mapping back to natural gas. Um, and how do I think of our energy future? I think uh, decarbonization is um, absolutely uh, a top priority. And decarbonizing natural gas gets us, uh, gets us both things at the same time. Okay. Thank you very much for your opening comments. 
And Travis, um, heritage, but background at DOE and FERC, uh, and the grid guy, tell us your perspective. That's right, so um, when I think about security and energy together, I think, well, the, the, the most prominent examples are the things we've already talked about. When we have a hot war in Europe, we can't ignore that. The thing that I would like to avoid is, let's, let's see what lessons we can learn from that scenario and try our best to avoid the worst of it. I'm concerned that I see some parallels between Germany's reliance on Russia for gas and our reliance on China for critical minerals. And that is one of the things where, you know, it's kind of an elephant in the room, but we need to talk about it because if, if we don't solve that issue and we're not allowed to mine in the US, which it seems like we, we are just not in that posture, then what are we doing? And it seems to me like sometimes we are, in essence, shooting ourselves in, a, in the foot, both in terms of the, uh, the economy that we're trying to build within the US, but then, you know, in some sense, we're buying that ammo from China. So sort of shooting ourselves in the foot with a bullet that we bought from China, and it's not, it's not gonna be a good long run posture, I don't think. So the, the question is, what can be done about it? I always focus on sort of what, is, what does good grid policy look like? To me, that looks like a reliable grid, but at least cost. And we're, we're very good at either one of those. Uh, we, we know what it takes to make a reliable power grid. The question is, are we, gonna, are we gonna keep it reliable in a smart way and in a way that actually supports the industrial economies that, that we're talking about? I, I think the, the sheer amount of uh, industrial, in, in terms of the manufacturing load, the combined heat and power load, I think people are just not up to speed on, on what that takes to do that. And in a lot of cases, we're still using coal on site, there's CHP units with coal, there's, there's gas, there's, so if you're trying to decarbonize that, it's incredibly hard. And that, that's the one thing that isn't readily available if you're going in the wind plus solar plus batteries paradigm. The process heat is, is a tough thing to come by. You know, do you generate the electricity first and then convert that to heat later? And there's all sorts of losses involved in that. So, you know, in terms of good policy in the long run, another thing I'd like to see is less action in the executive order space. We've seen that on both sides of the aisle. I'm not being partisan here. I just, I dislike it on, <laughs> when it comes from either party, because it's this yo-yo of, you know, if you're trying to build a, mm -hmm. you know, a hydrogen economy or a nuclear economy, whatever you're trying to do, the lead time on those projects is gonna be more than four years. So then the question is, do we only know what the policies are gonna be for about four years at a time and then have the rug ripped out from under us? I think that's that's the thing that bothers me is we've it's not just that we don't necessarily have a clear vision. We have a vision that is clear for four years in one direction, then is radically different four years afterwards. So that we we've got to get some durability in in the in the policies here. Um, and I I do want to leave plenty of time for Q and A, so I'll, I'll I'll leave it there. Yeah, well, following up on that for just a minute, uh, and I'll ask uh, the three of you to respond to this is uh, one of the things we hear all the time in energy policy is that. Policy requires consistency, and that regulated entities, businesses, corporations, investors, require stability. They need to know what the rules are, and that the rules aren't going to change. And I'm told that that changing of the rules, changing of policy, changing on a whim, uh, that uncertainty creates business risk. Do you all agree with that premise, and what did I maybe leave out? I'll start, go ahead and start right here with Travis. Yeah, um, I think you nailed it. The risk is real. So I'll, I'll use an example, because um, I used to be a rep for the Industrial Consumers of the, 
electricity in, in the U.S. One, one common thing is this combined heat and power question. So if you've committed, you know, in theory, you've committed to stop using coal. Let's say you have a, an on-site coal plant. You've committed to shutting that down. Then the question is, what's my next investment? Can I rely on gas? Can I even get the gas? We know that the shale resource itself is abundant. The transportation of the gas is not necessarily abundant, especially in certain states. So then the question is, do I convert that to gas? How long can I use gas? Uh, how long am I going to be allowed to burn gas? And then the question is, if it's something else entirely, if we want to go to this on-site, you know, like the, the, the Dow, SMR, the X energy angle, if, if you want to go that angle, um, what does that look like? What's the paperwork going to be and all of that? Or if you want to do on-site hydrogen, I mean, it, it's, it's a massive question mark. You don't really know what the rules of the game are going to be 10 years out, and that's, that's really difficult. Because you know, th these assets are probably going to last 40 plus years, so it, yeah. it, that's the tough part. Thank you. Matusi, your thoughts on this? I think one of our, one of the key challenges is, um, you know, the same way we talk about kind of balance between uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. On the energy side, we're putting in lots of incentives, but so lots of carrots and no sticks. And at the end of the day, I think especially when we, you know, on, on my side of the, of the court, uh, we watch a, a lot around uh, Inflation Reduction Act, um, the hydrogen hubs, the uh, uh, bipartisan uh, infrastructure law, like lots of interesting incentive plans, but none of the kind of going to the core of the problem of CO2 emissions, that if there was a cost associated with CO2 emissions, um, then a, a lot of these ideas would kind of trickle down from that rather than it being a hodgepodge of incentives that change over time, either by geography or by, by, by dollar amount. I think at the end of the day, it's gotta, be, it's gotta be both. So you're referring to a carbon tax then? I'm not saying carbon tax, but there needs to be some sort of pricing mechanism for it that's mm -hmm. not just, um, it, it can't be incentive only, mm -hmm. because we end up, we, that ends up cascading down to making it a local, a, a, like a local community level, like what does the city want? What does the county want? Decarbonization as like an existential threat to the United States, um, to me, deserves more attention than it being a local municipal policy. So you would advocate for a national approach or preferable over a local approach? I, I would. Okay. Um, Adam, you said something that, uh, that piqued my interest and in. it was talking about the retirement of facilities before NextGen was ready to go. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we've seen this, we've, uh, we've certainly seen it in Europe, uh, uh, talking about nuclear in Germany, just decommissioned the mm -hmm. last three of their mm -hmm. nuclear facilities, even though they're at a power deficit. Mm -hmm. um, is there a risk that we retire baseload energy before uh, new supplies come online, and are we going to deal, and you, you can talk about North American Reliability Council or other forecasts mm -hmm. that have already come out suggesting that we're at threat for not being able to, to support the grid this summer through power generation. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's just a threat, right? So, so if you look, it's a few years back now, but there was a, a, a large push in, in both Vermont and California to close nuclear power plants. The, the reason they wanted to close them was, um, you know, concern about just nuclear in general, but while at the same time, those two states wanted to decarbonize and they wanted to push further to, to decarbonize, right? They did that, they had a plan, their plan worked on paper. In reality, their plan didn't work. 
and both saw greater carbon footprints, both states, right? They, they, you know, and, and then if you look at California, you know, it's smarter people than I can talk about this, but, you know, they import a lot of their energy. They're, uh, they don't, they don't always have the energy when they want it. You know, like, like the way I think about energy, um, in general is people don't want to have to think about their energy, right? When you turn the light on in the morning, you want your light to go on. When you turn it off, you want it off. When there's a storm, you still want it. You know, I live... I live at home with my wife, my dog, and two teenagers, which means I rank fifth in importance, right? But, but if the power goes out for three or four minutes some days, I feel like it's a crisis. We're pretty lucky where I live. All the, all the wires are pretty much underground, and so we have an occasional transformer problem. And, and, and again, I live in, in uh, Maryland near Annapolis, not far from here. Our power is pretty good. It's pretty reliable. Um, it may go out three or four times a year and never for longer than an hour. Yet after an hour, it's, you know, the whole family's in crisis. Um, so, so the problem is people make, you know, even people in government making decisions about that I want an energy mix or I want a particular attribute and I want it now and I'm not going to sit back and do the work to figure out what it takes. I, I think it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous set of policies. And I think it was your comment earlier, you don't want it local. Maybe it was your comment. You don't want it to be done locally. Right? You do want a more thoughtful, more broad approach. I don't know if it has to be federal, but, but we've also seen that a lot of state-level policies, you know, um, they unlevel the playing field where you really want it to be fair and, and, and easy for the best solutions to come forward. Okay. So I'll, I'll just add, yeah. we, we, don't, we don't want this artificial scarcity that we're seeing, especially mm -hmm. when we're trying to, say, you know, the EV push. If you're trying to electrify everything, if that's the goal, I'm not sure I entirely agree with the goal, but let's just, let's buy it for a moment that we're going to shift to EVs and all this other stuff. We want abundant supply. So we don't want to walk into this era of scarcity and say, I mean, that's how I would characterize the California model. They basically said, look, we're going to, we're going to have a, you know, a forced transition into mm -hmm. renewables. It's mostly a uh, solar PV plus, plus gas system. We're going to move into that. We're going to mandate EVs across the state, but be careful when you charge it. You can only charge it when the power mm -hmm. is there. There's a conflict there, and we, we should address that conflict. I think one way to do it is just take on this, you know, a, a very different approach, which is energy abundance, and especially don't close down a perfectly good power plant if it's running. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I have the analogy of the, uh, you know, I, I drive a car that's paid off. It's my wife's hand-me-down car from 2011, and it works fine. Um, it's the same kind of thing. Why would you turn in this thing that works great? You know, all of the nuke fleet, it's, you know, it's doing great. So I don't know why we would want to shut those down early. That's sort of the, the German approach, too, is to create artificial scarcity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's talk about that for just a second. Um, you know, when I talk about energy security, and I, I use the um, IEA's definition of an uninterruptible supply of affordable, reliable energy. That's really what we're talking about, not only for our homes and to make sure that the, the teenagers don't freak out when, uh, you know, there's no power for the computers, but to make sure that we can power the economy mm -hmm. and to make sure that we're not beholden to other countries. And uh, Travis, I'll start with you. You know, we went through uh, many, many decades following the Arab oil embargo of the early 70s being reliant upon the Middle East for oil. And we reached the point where... I would say, if you include Canada in the mix, we were largely energy independent. We've seen some backsliding on that. 
And your point is well taken about talking about uh, the resources required to deploy a renewable economy and how that entire supply chain is pretty much predominated by one country. And you alluded to uh, changing a dependency for another. So how do you, how do you synthesize uh, all of this together with the proposed tailpipe emission, with the proposed power plant emissions? Uh, wise, not wise? I'd like to see us tap the brakes on that. And that's, that's not just me talking. That's, as you said, that's NERC. That's the sort of large market operators in the US saying, hold on, we want a reliable system, but you're coming at us with all these rules at the same time saying that you're gonna basically increase demand and decrease supply, and it just doesn't add up. So I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's a policy choice for us to move that aggressively. And so I would urge you know, states and EPA and others to, to, to tap the brakes and say, let's, let's be smart about this, because I, I think the one thing that we can all agree on, if we do this wrong, if we do this the wrong way, will become the example of what not to do, and it's gonna hurt everybody here, and it's gonna basically hurt the long-term, mm -hmm. you know, if we're trying to convince other countries to do the same thing that we're doing, we should do it well. We, mm -hmm. we, we, we should not fall flat on this. And so that, that's one way to do it is to push too far too fast. We don't have the resources and, you know, things like if we need a bunch of new transmission to move the wind and solar to, to load centers, huge issue. Everybody's trying to, they're scrambling, trying to figure out how to build transmission. Um, the other thing we can do is just not force that transition in the first place and that sort of the need for the new transmission doesn't go away completely, but it becomes not an emergency. So we, there's, there's a smarter, I would say slower way to go about this. And so that, that's, that's the option that, that's on the table. We don't have to, you know, the, the term existential threat, I, I think it's overplayed, but what that does is it gives you this sense of urgency, which is the whole point of it. But in that urgency, we might lose some rationality. So this, this urge to move so quickly that we do silly things and do them wrong, uh, that's where I think the real risk is. And you think that risk in part is to the economy and the cost? Yeah, I mean, if we have widespread blackouts, I mean, it's not just you know, the human cost of that. We saw that in Texas. It's the question of, well, so if, if I have a choice between, you know, if, I, if I'm going to have heavy industry either in the U.S. or in China, a lot of companies are facing that choice right now, uh, especially the, the companies who are leaving Germany for this very reason. Mm. Costs are going up, power quality is going down. Where do they go? I'd like for them to have an easy answer and just say, stay in the U.S. Okay. Can, can I make a Yes, make a Tusi, there? please. I was um, coming to you next with how can <laughs> hydrogen help and what can you do for everybody? You know, please I, feel free to respond. There is a, a, a theme here um, that I really want to kind of nail on the head. Um, that there's this mistaken um, association between electrification and decarbonization. And those are two completely different things. Um, I think a, a lot of the, um, uh, for lack of a better term, like the political environmental community, I mean, I'm a, I am a strong environmentalist, uh, but I think I'm a, pretty pragmatic in my approach, um, that at the end of the day, just because you electrify something doesn't mean that that thing now has zero mm -hmm. CO2 emissions. Mm -hmm. It may mean that that object in and of itself has zero CO2 emissions, but upstream of that, that electricity had to be generated. The construction work to put the power lines in the ground created a CO2 footprint. Um, and that kind of systemic thinking of, um, of total CO2 emissions 
has to be incorporated into the decarbonization discussion. We can't just say, we're going to electrify it. To your point about California, California actually exports a fair amount of the renewable electricity it generates because it gets bought by Oregon and Washington and other neighboring states. And as a result, during peak periods, can end up importing coal-fired power mm -hmm. from Utah. And if you're using that to charge your car, I mean, that's not, that is not very green. So my response to, uh, to Travis, I think, for everything else that we, I think we um, agree with, the point, I stand by the comment about decarbonization, about uh, CO2 in our atmosphere as being mission critical and an existential threat. But the piece that we do agree on is that, I mean, piecing apart how we decarbonize um, is critically important, that we can't prescribe the solution and say it has to be solar, it has to be wind. Rather, I think we need to be pointing to our emissions targets and then leaving it up to um, a local operator to figure out how they actually want to get there. In our case, our argument is really around you know, most of process heating is delivered via boiler, large industrial boilers and large industrial furnaces that there are very low CO2 boilers and furnaces on the market. New hydrogen boilers and furnaces are already on the market internationally. And by combining modern hydrogen technology with some of these manufacturers' systems, you can plug those boilers into the wall and generate decarbonized steam directly from natural gas. So if we think about the economic value of a factory and all of their processes and systems already being built out, if we can help them decarbonize their footprint and not have to go through and overhaul the rest of their business and not have to wait for renewables to come online and not have to wait for new transmission in, uh, infrastructure to come online, then that becomes a very economic, fast-acting approach that both achieves that decarbonization, strengthens the grid because you're not trying to electrify a high temperature and industrial heating process, and you can do it in the, you can do it in the near term. So explain to us how this works for maybe somebody that doesn't know. How does natural gas turn into hydrogen? Yep. And then what happens with the byproduct, which I assume is carbon? Yep. How is that green? How does that work? Yeah. So our um, really core technology is really rooted in the idea that natural gas is one carbon atom and four hydrogen atoms. And when you burn natural gas, you're burning hydrogen and you're burning carbon. Um, and by stripping that carbon out, um, rather than needing to do direct air capture, which is very energy intensive, um, and then requires you to figure out a way to manage CO2, by doing it at the point of use and pulling that offending carbon atom out um, as a solid, we can deliver a clean fuel where you need it without having to build out all of the um, infrastructure that would be otherwise required to transport, to transport hydrogen. So um, for the uh, kind of inter entertainment of the, of the group here, um, I, I brought a, actually a jar of some of the carbon that we've captured and sequestered from natural gas. Um, this jar is, has 50 grams of carbon in it. 
And this jar represents the carbon emissions. This is the carbon that's emitted from your furnace in your house, running it for 30 seconds. I mean, you can do the math in how long you ran your furnace this year and how many people are in this room, let alone how many people are in the city. Assuming a gas, we're talking gas furnace. Well, I would argue even if you had an electric furnace, how okay. was that electricity generated? Okay. It's mm -hmm. still, you're still using the same amount of energy to heat. So the, the emissions footprint is the same. Our whole argument, though, is that once we strip the carbon out, this now becomes a productive material. And we can use this in asphalt. Um, we're already using it in concrete. Um, so we can do double duty in our decarbonization work, both in getting these combustion processes off of burning hydrocarbons and then making productive use of the byproduct. Okay. Um, let me head back over to, uh, to Adam and talk nuclear right. for a little bit. Sure. Uh, how does nuclear stack up against other fuel sources for electric generation, cost-wise? Well, so if it's existing nuclear plant, very, very well, right? So uh, nuclear power plants are capital intensive. Um, today's nuclear plants, when we talk about new nuclear, uh, folks often use the word advanced nuclear or small modular reactors or generation three plus generation four. Those are all different designs in a lot of ways from the plants that we have today. And what we did over several generations of reactor designs for the, the plants that exist today is what, what happens when you let engineers do their thing. They get incrementally more efficient and incrementally more expensive to build. And we ultimately ended up with um, a bunch of reactors that are too expensive to build. Right? Now, once they're built, and all the existing fleet obviously already built, fairly inexpensive to operate. They also last a long time. Right? We have many of the reactors that are in this United States are are being extended their lives now from 60 years to 80 years, where you know you compare that to a gas plant that lasts 20 years. So you get, you get your money back over time. Um, the challenge with building new reactor plants, by and large, is we haven't built them yet, the smaller ones, to prove it out, right? And so, so one of the things I talk about when you look at new reactor designs is there's a couple of different con considerations. One is, does it use you know, uranium and water like today's plants? Or does it use, I'll just say broadly, something else, right? And there's a lot that use something else. Uh, we call those generation four reactors. Uh, they're, they're not nearly as advanced as sometimes you would think. They've all been demonstrated in the 70s, the 60s, the, you know, at, at our laboratories in the earlier days of the Department of Energy back when it was still the AEC, some of them. Um, so the technologies aren't new, they just haven't been demonstrated and put into productive use. If you look at the Generation 3 Plus designs, there's a handful of those out there. And, and again, GE's working in, in both the Generation 3 Plus space and the Generation 4 space. If you look at the Generation 3 space, I think the key differentiator is how much steel and concrete do you have in your design? Because 70% of the cost of building a reactor is the excavation, the steel, and the concrete. You know, the, the part with the uranium in it actually is a pretty small part of the overall cost. And it really is this large containment facility and containment building. So by reducing the reactor size, one, you, you get less total concrete. Um, some companies, including General Electric, have figured out how to even further simplify our design so that we reduce the steel and concrete per megawatt by more than 50%. Um, 
We've looked at using all components that already exist and are already in production and use in other applications. You know, so the idea being, don't invent anything new. Uh, don't make any technological leaps. Um, just build it smaller, make it simpler, reduce systems, components where you can. And then the last piece is, a big part of the challenge in building a nuclear reactor is the cost of financing the plant if you're gonna build a reactor plant over a 10-year span and you're not producing any revenue from it over that 10 years. So, so it's literally the cost of the capital as opposed to just the capital cost, right? So if you build it smaller, instead of building it over 10 years, you can build it over two, three, or four years. And so your financing cost is less and you start generating a revenue from it more quickly. So, so we still have work to do to prove it, right? But the, the goal and the intent is to make sure that we're at least as competitive as other sources of energy that exist today. So we talk about SMRs, small mm -hmm. nuclear reactors or micro reactors. Yep. Is part of that that the certification process, once it's complete, allows you to replicate the same design over and over again without going mm -hmm. through the entire process, hopefully cutting down on certification costs and time. And are these scalable? Are they plug and play? Can yeah. you, if you need more megawatts, do you just plug a couple more in? How, how does that work? So, so the answer to your question about once you design it once and build it once, can you replicate it and do it more efficiently, more effectively? Arguably, that would have been true for our existing plants as well. Yeah. But what happened in the time was we allowed each one, we as an industry, allowed each one to be unique. Right? We have 90-something operating reactors in the United States. No two are the same. My experience before I uh, entered uh, the private sector was with the Navy's nuclear program. What we did there is we had designs for different ships and we'd have 30, 40, or 50 in a row that were all exactly the same, exactly. right? So you simplify your construction, you see an actual learning curve. So the first one costs, if the first one costs a dollar, the second one costs 80 cents, the third one costs 70 cents, and it, you know, eventually it tails out, but you see a big reduction in cost, right? You also see simplifications in maintenance, in um, managing for, um, you know, obsolescence and all those things training, operation, everything simpler. We could have done that with the existing fleet, we just didn't, all right? Weren't as smart then, perhaps, as we are now. The intent of the smaller ones is exactly that, right? So design it once, lock in the design, and then that's the thing that you build. You see efficiencies will come out of the factories, they'll come on the on-site construction, they'll come in training, operation, et cetera. Um, the second question I think you asked was about being able to plug in and do a little more or a little less and micros and all those other things. Um, not, for the not for our company, right? So we designed a 300 megawatt reactor and the reason we did that is we said, that's a pretty good sweet spot for being able to plug in where a coal plant used to be using the existing infrastructure and grid. Then we said, if you want two, you have to build two. If you want three, you have to build three. Some of our competitors have said, hey, we're gonna build smaller increments, 50 megawatts or 100 megawatts. And if you want 100, you build 250s. If you want 200, you build 450s, right? So you can scale it up or down. What we decided not to do that because we thought, let's go with the simplest solution to get to market first, cheapest, and then we'll let others work in that market. But that's absolutely a concept. Um, and I think, I think over the long run, it'll be successful. And then one quick word about, you know, there's, we have, this is what happens when you let engineers name things. We have micro reactors, we have mini reactors, we have small reactors, and we have obviously large reactors. Um, small reactors, generally we talk about 100 to 300 megawatts. I think about those as grid scale, 
right? That's, if you want to make electricity, that's how you do it. Um, there are micros and minis. Those tend, now again, you can plug those into the grid, but those are more niche applications. You know, DOD is certainly interested in those for some of its facilities. There are remote areas in the country or in the world where folks want them. Um, any place today where you might use emergency diesels, you know, a micro reactor would be great. Anywhere you might do industrial applications and you need a lot of power in a, in a short amount of time, you want to be able to have it consistent, that's where a micro would play. Okay. Uh, Travis, back to you for a second. How would you grade our grid today? What kind of, would you give it an A, a B, a C, or something else? So I'm, <clears throat> I'm pretty, and, and I, sorry, and I should say, when I say the grid, there are actually three grids, right? But uh, mm -hmm. however you want to define that. Yeah, so we have three different AC grids, but I, I think they're all facing the same challenges. And I think, you know, today I'd say something like a B minus, a whole lot of room for improvement, but uh, not necessarily going down the tubes. I, what I'm worried about is the, this new spate of especially EPA regs that are just going after not, so there's, there's both the tailpipe rule, which is in essence an electric vehicle mandate. So the EPA expects two out of every three new cars by the year 2032 to be battery powered. So there's that. So it's this supply crunch, demand increase happening at the same time. Uh, given all the policies that have been proposed, my concern is that that grade starts to fall. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm okay with the status quo. We could always do better. Uh, and, and things like we, we could even just be smarter. Like even when we had the rolling blackouts in Texas, there were better ways to do it. There were people in Texas that had power all four days. There were people that had no power for four days straight. We can do better even when we're forced into this rolling outage case. You know, we, we can be smart about how we do that, which I think we absolutely need to do. So there's plenty of room for improvement, but my main concern is, is going forward. And I, if I can touch on the, the yeah, cost please. question a bit, yeah. this is where I think it's really helpful to have a, a, a market test so as much as I love being an armchair economist and talking about the things that I like and costs and things like that, <laughs> we can do the LCOE math, we can do the, you know, the, the cost of energy where you, it's levelized over the, the life of the plant and nuke tends to look, even new nuke looks pretty good if you give it that 80 year mm -hmm. lifespan. Uh, the, thing that I, the thing that I'm not sure about is whether we have a good market test for technologies now, because the real answer is, we should have a market and the thing that wins is the best. Mm -hmm. uh, what we don't have is, I would say, a, a fair environment, probably even for hydrogen, for nuke, anything new is going to be viewed with skepticism and probably too much red tape, especially with the nuke stuff. And so the, the question is, then do we even have a market? Once you get the red tape sorted out, do we even have a market to test this stuff? The, the, the most prominent new nuke was the, the, the Vogel plant in Georgia was built in a cost of service environment. So it's a very regulated, that's not exactly an electricity market. Um, I'm probably going to get some hate mail for saying that. But so we don't even necessarily have a good market test. So I don't even want to speculate on who's going to win and what's, what's good and what's not. I want the market to decide. And I'm also concerned that not only with all the red tape, but we, we just don't have a good market mm -hmm. test to apply. Mm -hmm. OK. Uh, Matusi, um, you know, zooming out just a little bit, you've talked about, or that you see, if I have this correctly, uh, economic and market opportunities for your, what I'm going to call your version of hydrogen. What, what, what do you think they are? You know, the, the U.S. is in, a, as I mentioned earlier, in a really unique space. 
that we have abundant natural resources, that we understand how to get out of the ground economically um, and reliably. We have infrastructure. We have a marketplace. Um, I think um, there's a big opportunity, not just in decarbonization in general as a new energy space, um, but in reshoring heavy manufacturing and energy intensive manufacturing. If you look at um, uh, uh, European companies or Asian companies that have decarbonization mandates um, and have heavy industrial process heating loads, in my mind, if I was a state and I'm trying to drive economic development and job creation, um, if we've got a technology that can decarbonize natural gas at the point of use, and we can deliver those megajoules of heating energy, of clean heating um, energy more economically than the cost of comparable natural gas in Europe, then why would you not want to put your manufacturing facility in the US? We've got the skilled labor. We've got the marketplace. We have the natural gas. If we can effectively and economically decarbonize that gas, then to me, that's, then that's, a, slam, then that's a slam dunk. Yeah, and I'd like to just throw out and mention that, uh, you know, when we look at the carbon intensity of heavy industry and production, uh, the U.S. does it pretty well. You know, we, have, we do have an EPA. We do have regulations, and that's, that's not necessarily uh, true in emerging countries or third mm -hmm. markets mm -hmm. where a lot of the stuff that we buy is produced. Would yep. you all agree with that? Okay. Yes, yeah, go ahead. I, I would, but the thought that was swirling in my head when, when you guys were speaking is if you look at some of the challenges that we're dealing with, like I'm not a fan of um, a lot of government, right? I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan of government and defense where it's obviously needed. Um, but I'm also a fan of government in places where there's a true national interest or a national security interest and then putting a little bit more of a thumb on the scale and making sure that we're doing the things we need to do. And, you know, we've been saying energy security is national security for a long time. When that phrase first came out, oh, I don't know, maybe 25 or so years ago, I was a skeptic, right? Today, I'm absolutely in lockstep that that's really, that's true, right? And it's not just about what we do here. It's about what Russia and China do everywhere, right? And the thing that I think stymies us to an extent is, we don't have a national policy for energy. Mm. And it's even worse than that. We don't have an agency or an arm of government responsible for that, right? We have a Department of Energy, but this isn't what they do. They're, they're more about research, right? I mean, two thirds of their funding is national security work. And the one third that isn't is more research and science. It's not about deployment. It's not about the grid. They do grid research, but it's not about making sure we have a reliable grid, reliable source of energy, any of these things. They've, they've done great things to help push the state of the art. You know, we talk about EVs, for instance, and battery technologies. Um, notwithstanding my neighbor who yells at me when I tell her that just because you plug it into the wall doesn't mean that it's carbon free. You know, it's um, that the, you know, the energy is coming yeah. from somewhere, the same point you made. But, but we push these technologies forward, but there's no cohesive strategy for now what? 
I, yeah, I think that's a very important point. Probably one we could talk on for the it's, next couple of hours. That could be a whole panel, right? I'll try to be brief, but it is actually, it might be okay. even worse than that. I think to the extent that we have a national energy policy, it's in statutes that were enacted in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. And yep. that's even worse because that era is gone. We need to move on. Okay. We have so many statutes that are based on that yeah. that we, we, yeah. we have to rework all of that stuff. So uh, this is a great segue uh, because now is time for audience participation. And so uh, if you have any questions that you would like to ask any of the panel members, uh, please raise your hand and uh, Oregon will come around uh, with a microphone for you. So all of you touched on the tension between like government, the US government putting their hand on the scale in, in, in favor of a certain energy versus waiting and letting the market do its own thing. Uh, how does that, I, how does that tension play out some more? Like how much should we be letting uh, government bodies sort of regulate this industry, the energy industry, and how much should we just let the market decide what the best thing to do is? Okay, so question on, uh Finger on the scales, either through subsidies or tax policies, uh, choosing market uh, consumer choice. Who wants to? Who wants okay, to as, that as, one? The, as the least experienced person up here, I'm, I'm going to start, and then, and then <laughs> right. you guys can, uh, can can fix it along the way. Um, I, I am a big natural gas advocate. I'm a big decarbonization advocate, but I can tell you for a fact that if we leave safety and national security decisions around natural gas to the natural gas industry, our national interests are not gonna be looked after. So I am a, a champion for the space, but to me it is mission critical um, that we have um, a, a, a kind of like a level set cohesive understanding of what our national objectives are there. And there's, there, there has to be like a single point of truth. And right now we don't have that. Let me go to Adam and then, I was going uh, to say. Uh, I'm sure Travis will weigh in on this as well. Five years ago, many utilities would say to you, we're going to phase out our coal. We're going to replace it with natural gas. That gives us carbon reductions. Look at me. I'm doing exactly what everyone wants. Right? I mean, it was five years ago. Now, all of a sudden, we're in a regime where folks are saying, oh, well, that's not good enough. Right? Um, so that, that puts a distortion into the market. Second, um, anything new is gonna cost more until we get it right. That's just the way things work, right? A developer builds a community. The first house, trust me, took twice as long to build as the last house that looks exactly the same. That's just how manufacturing is, right? So when we wanted, when the government wanted to reduce the cost of solar and wind, they dumped a lot of money in it and they, they did things at local levels to require that in the energy mix. And the cost of those technologies have come down. When I look at things like hydrogen production, I know for a fact when I look at nuclear, there's going to be a cost hurdle to restarting the industry to be able to build them effectively, right? So that's a place where I'm not asking for government, uh, more government regulation, and I would argue the NRC does a pretty good job at, at regulating us already. Um, sometimes more, maybe more than we want, but I think, I think they're a good organization. They do important work. 
But I, I think the place where government can help is one, a clear set of policies, and two, where it's needed, there are some financial, financial incentives or grants that can be provided to get those things over the, over the starting line. And that's what Canada did. That's why Canada's ahead of us in nuclear right now. What do you think? Well, I'm, fundamentally I'm a markets guy, and the easy answer is let's just let markets sort it out. Uh, I think that is a naive answer at this point, um, and especially for reasons that Adam has talked about. I mean, th this is uh, where, th where the U.S. energy industry is right now. A lot of these technologies are going to come from places like DOE Labs and others where, I mean, the, we're, we're so intertwined at this point. I think just saying, well, let's just rip the Band-Aid off um, is, is unwise. Where, where we definitely agree, too, is this idea that it's more about a framework. So if you get back to sort of the first principles, role of government, it's about you know, clearly assigning property rights and then mostly getting out of the way. Um, I, I think where that would work in energy is to basically clearly establish the rules of the road, which gets back to this idea that you know, rules by executive order that change every four or eight years, mm -hmm. uh, that, is, that is no way to run energy policy at all. And so I, I, would, I would start there and say, you know, even if it comes to uh, having, having Congress act on CO2, I mean, even just having a clear signal there, like, however they come out, it's going to be a better signal than, you know, EPA is going after coal and gas now. And then, you know, somebody else gets, you know, we have an election, a new president, new EPA, entirely new rules. Uh, so we have a, a, a fundamental problem there where the, the, the answer of just saying, well, let's just let markets sort it out. Uh, even if I agree with that, and even if sort of the next admin agrees with that, um, we really got to get to something more durable because yeah. uh, I, I, I doubt the next team is, is going to come in and say, well, let's just do exactly the way that mm -hmm. Trump did it mm -hmm. or Biden did it. So the, the, the rules of the road changing all the time is, has got to go. Yeah, so whether we're talking about procurement on the defense side or changes administration, there's always been this sort of inefficient back and forth, right? But would you all agree that uh, the pendulum is swinging harder and further uh, than it has uh, with changes between political parties and, and honestly even changes within political parties? Is mm -hmm. that a fair mm -hmm. statement? Okay. I think we've, we've got time for one more question, if anybody has one, and then we're going to move into our, our final... Uh, our final discussion, uh, which is going to be, and I'll let you think about it for a second. What would you do right now to advise President Biden or the Congress on what they should be doing or what they should not be doing today and for the rest of the year? Yes. Uh, hi. Riley. <clears throat> Riley Walters, uh, Hudson Institute. I'm with the Japan chair. And so I look a lot at Asia, and uh, there's a lot of demand in Asia for American energy. And so uh, as we talk about um, you know, building America's own energy dependence, there's also still this demand that we should be exporting energy as well. And so I'm just trying, as you think about what you know, the next administration should be doing on this, you know, how should we be thinking about matching both these needs? Um, uh, and then you know, in, in what industries particular, like for example, the Japanese are very interested in hydrogen, but there's also still so much demand for LNG. Um, but you know, oftentimes regulatory barriers get in the way. So just love to hear your thoughts on sort of how can we internationalize American energy? Okay. Who, who I'll, I'll, I'll start with the, uh, you know, something I've been pleasantly surprised by, I'm probably doing a lot of trashing of the Biden team and EPA and things like that. One thing that I've been pleasantly surprised by 
is the continued export of LNG. And I, I don't know exactly what that conversation is like on the inside, but for, from the outside, it's, it's encouraging that we're still exporting gas. I mean, it, at, at the end of the day, we know that gas is probably gonna be burned, it's probably gonna emit CO2, but that, that's still in the, the, the finding, and this is a, a, a DOE finding, that has to be in the public interest. Uh, so you still need to make that public interest finding for each cargo that, go, that goes out. Uh, so I'm, I'm thankful that that is still a thing, that they're still giving those the thumbs up, and yeah, that's going to Japan and elsewhere. Uh, I'm personally, I'm, I'm the type to call that freedom gas. Let's export our freedom. Let, you know, let's let's share it with the world. I'm I'm heartened that that's still happening. Two two thirds of any LNG tanker that's out on the water, two thirds of the energy value of that tanker value of that tanker is hydrogen. So maybe we call LNG freedom hydrogen, because at the end of the day, if I'm importing LNG and I'm operating in a, um, a, a decarbon under a kind of like a decarbonization mandate like in Japan, there's no reason why you can't import that LNG, um, get that LNG you know to the factories where it needs to go, you know, convert it into natural gas, and then step it step it down to hydrogen at the at the point of use. I think there's some really um, interesting future scenarios where if you, if you think of LNG just as like the transport mechanism, um, it's a bus carrying energy and it can be decarbonized energy if the intention when it hits the ground is not to burn it, but instead to convert it into, convert it into hydrogen. So I, I see a um, very lucrative future state whether I'm the importing company or the exporting company, or I want to be at the point of decarbonization, um, that that LNG has a significant future role to play in, in decarbonization, both domestically and internationally. Adam. So I'm going to go in a completely different direction. Um, one of the long poles in the tent for nuclear is licensing. And one of the places, quite frankly, a success story, I think, so far, you know, it's not done yet, but our Nuclear Regulatory Commission works in partnership with the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. They work in partnership with um, what is a, a relatively new and growing regulatory authority in Poland, in the UK, and in other countries to make sure that they're sharing knowledge, analysis, best practices, so that you know, one, it streamlines, but two, it also helps get everybody up to speed so that we can, once we're licensed in Canada or the US, very quickly export and get licensed in those other places. Okay. In the minute or two remaining, speed round. We'll go ahead and All start right. uh, with you and then walk so, back this way. So I'm gonna be hyper parochial here. Um, if I had one wish on my wish list, it would be this. and. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program, but it's a large grant program. And DOE has that, and they have some other um, you know, grants that they provide for uh, reactor developers. My one would be to collapse those programs, right? Those are cost sharing, where every time you spend a dollar, you get 50 cents back, or sometimes you get to defer your costs, and sometimes you pay 20%, what have you. I would ask them to collapse those programs to something where there's a firm commitment from the grant funding receiver that they actually deliver a product at the end of the day, right? So I'd like nothing more than a utility or a collection of utilities to partner with the United States government 
on a grant program that makes sense financially, but where the utilities are required to finish a reactor at the end of the day. Um, we've had programs like this in the past. A lot of times they get started, money goes out the door, no reactor at the end of the day. And that's not helpful for our energy uh, planning. It's not helpful for, the, for our nation. It's not helpful for our allies. Martusi? Um, two items. Number one is um, methane pollution from the wellhead through midstream um, oil and gas operations um, is, is a significant problem. And the future, uh, the long-term future of natural gas is really going to map back to mitigating that methane, that met methane pollution. So we've got to get our, we've got to get our hands um, around that. That's number one. Number two, the incentives that are currently in place for um, hydrogen hubs and the IRA um, are really targeted around refinery scale type projects. Um, but most of our national um, emissions, particularly associated with industrial operations, are actually at the point of use at the factory. Um, and getting hydrogen infrastructure to those points is going to take decades. So we need the incentives that are currently in Hydrogen Hub and Inflation Reduction Act to reflect the value from the point of production to the actual point of use and the cost benefit and the CO2 intensity benefit of um, the value of generating the hydrogen from natural gas at the point of use. And right now, IRA and Hydrogen Hub kind of valuations mm -hmm. don't reflect that. All right, Travis, last word. So I think we're very fortunate to be able to talk about decarbonization and all of that stuff. I, I think I'd, I'd like to put this in a global context, though. We are a rich country. We're very privileged to be able to do that. I think when we take the global view, mm. especially when you talk to folks in the, in the global south, they are not as concerned about decarbonization. They're more concerned about using energy in the first place. So talk about about a billion people don't really have access to a grid. So the, the fact that we do have that, amazing. I, I, I don't want anything about that to change or get worse. What we do need to think about though, especially when you take a longer term view, something like global energy use is gonna double in the next 20 or 30 years. We, we need to embrace that, say, first of all, that is a good thing. The act of using energy is not per se immoral. You might wanna clean it up, but the question of using energy, we're only gonna need more. Yeah. So let's get out of this scarcity mindset of, oh, we just need to be more efficient and do things around the margins. No, we need to double our global energy in the next, you know, in, in our lifetime. So that, that is a huge challenge, and let's, let, let's confront that with abundance, and let's, let's not view it from a, a place of scarcity. Okay. I'd like to thank the audience for joining us today and all those that have joined us online. Uh, thank you to our panel members and to the Hudson staff who made this possible. Thanks for joining us.